good evening. Good evening. Good afternoon. What it was something. Uh, I'd like to welcome you to this event on uh, as part of the LSE Literary Festival on Utopias. Uh, this event is about the future of cities. And I'm Richard Sennert. I'm the uh, chair of the advisory committee of LSE Cities. And um, I, we're going to have a very rich evening, I hope. Uh, I'm supposed to inform you that the hashtag <laughs> is at LSE LitFest. Isn't that nice? Uh, and I also want to inform you that there'll be a book signing that's taking place right after uh, this event and, uh, for uh, both Darren uh, Anderson and for uh, Matthew Beaumont. Um, this has a, I hope, intriguing title to you about the future city, which is Cruel or Consoling Utopia which means very simply that in most thinking about urban utopias, it's a question of people dwelling in somebody else's fantasy, which can be, as it is in a love affair, either cruel or consoling. And this is a real issue in urbanism. What right do we have to create a utopia which doesn't include the people who are going to live it. Maybe we do have a right. Uh, how inclusive can utopia be? Not a question that's easy to answer. Uh, one city doesn't cover all possible permutations of human beings. So that is the kind of issue we thought we'd spend an hour and a half uh, tonight uh, talking about. We're going to have three speakers two commentators, and then we're going to have a half an hour, I hate calling them Q&As, but discussion with you in the audience, chaired by me. In the first third, we've invited three people very different um, who have thought about the issue about the future of cities and how they can evolve uh, or not. The first is Matthew Beaumont, who is a senior lecturer in the English department at UCL. And uh, he's written a wonderful book called Night Walking, A Nocturnal History of London. And he's also the editor of Restless Cities. Um, the next person to speak is Darren Anderson. And he's the author of Imaginary Cities. Uh, and he's... Uh, written all over uh, uh, in uh, Dezine City Lab, Eon, and he's written about cities that stretch from Paris to Phnom Penh. Our third lecturer is Rachel Cooper, who's the Distinguished Professor of Design Management and Policy at Lancaster University. She is also a very incisive and argumentative uh, uh, writer on cities, not buried by this very distinguished title. Uh, and um, these are three really quite different ways about looking at how cities should be shaped in the future. Um, 
The people who designed this at the uh, LSE cities are Ed Charlton and Ninad Pandit. There are Mellon Fellows. We, we have each year a fellow or fellows, fellow S's we've had as well, uh, who are people in the humanities who are thinking about the relation of the humanities and the social sciences. And Ed and Ninad uh, are doing that for us this year, and this is part of their work in the Mellon Chair. So without further ado, let me introduce Matthew Beaumont. I'm going to sit there because you'll see if they just happen to wander over time, I'll be holding up a sign. <laughs> uh, so, Matthew, why don't you start us off? Thank you, Richard, very much, and thank you, you all for coming. Uh, yeah, I can do, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think there was one slide. Uh, I mean, it's not important, the slide. Uh, it's decorative, really. Oh, I can do it, can I? You can do it. Really? What do I do? You see this object? Oh, that. Okay. If you take this object and you push it like oh, that. Oh, perfect. Okay, good. Brilliant. Thanks. Well, uh, there goes my dreams of uh, representing a, a generation that's, uh, you know, <laughs> adept with technology. Uh, great. Thank you very much, Richard, and thank you all uh, for, for coming. Uh, we, each of us, the three of us, had to submit before we uh, came at the beginning of this week a, a kind of sketch of what we thought we might say in the ten-minute slot we've got, uh, but we haven't seen each other's. It's like some dreadful parlour game, um, or a game of this, what the surrealists called exquisite corpse, uh, where, uh, which is, in other words, a kind of consequences. So we none of us know what we're saying, and we may uh, arrive at some really kind of monstrous composite composite form it may turn out that we're speaking completely different dialects and, and that we're not communicating with, each, with one another because we come from different backgrounds, different disciplines so I hope very much that's not the case oops, 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 hang on <laughs> that, sorry I didn't mean to give a sneak preview of um, other people's talks so I am um, I come from a literary background and I've written a couple of books about late 19th century utopias in particular, so I suppose that's where my interest in utopian cities, future cities, uh, come from. But I was thinking uh, in relation to the, uh, the topic we're addressing here about what conception, what kind of notion of the future city most people have. Um, oh, sorry, this happens every time I touch the screen. It's really... Um, there. And it, it occurred to me that, that, that actually most people's sense of a future city, if they articulate it at all, is shaped by uh, apocalyptic m- uh, expressions of mass culture, uh, like uh, dystopian films, like this film, which it just so happens is being released on Friday, uh, this, coming, this coming Friday. I've even brought along uh, a little prop there, which is a, a popcorn carton advertising the same, the same film. It's the sequel to Olympus Has Fallen, which gives a sense, I think, of the uh, of, of the, of the way in which these are narratives of imperial crisis, 
of, a, of ecological crisis often and, and also of political crisis. I haven't seen this film. I have watched the trailer online. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's about an attack on the British capital uh, where uh, a whole bunch of uh, political leaders, world leaders, have gathered for uh, some kind of summit. Uh, there's an assassination attempt. Several of them die, I think. I don't want to give too much away, but this is on the trailer. Uh, the American president goes missing, and uh, a, guess what, Middle Eastern uh, political terrorist seems to be masterminding a, a terroristic attack on the British Capital. An attack has decimated the British capital, a, a kind of newsreader voiceover in tones in the, um, uh, in the trailer. We see images of, uh, of Parliament Square, of Trafalgar Square, of various bridges being, being blown up. Just imagine every major city descending into chaos, the, the villain whose name is Bakawi uh, uh, announces at one point via uh, social media. Um, perhaps for reasons that are as much pragmatic, I don't know, to do with uh, tax breaks or whatever it might be, uh, for once it's London here that rather than, say, Washington or New York that's, uh, that's um, the, the victim. Those, those two cities have been given a provisional reprieve, but the idea in the film is that London is the start of it all and that a terroristic campaign will roll out and these future cities, these cities rather, will be uh, destroyed devastating them for the future. And, of course, this is a pattern. Uh, there have been various films over the last 20 years. We can look further back, of course, to uh, apocalyptic films which imagine the end of the city or the complete uh, devastation of parts of cities. Uh, the Day After Tomorrow being an exemplary uh, case. Uh, Independence Day, Armageddon. I'm sure you've all seen apocalyptic or dystopian films which enact this scenario. The future city, in other words, in popular culture, above all, I think, is a city, to echo the, the trailer of, of London Has Fallen, is a city descending into chaos. It's a, a decimated city. But if, if these dystopian films are, if these films are, are, are self-evidently dystopian, then they also conduct a kind of utopian charge as well. And it's that, I, I suppose, that I want to just think about for a moment in this context today. I think there are two reasons, principally, for this utopian dimension to, to, to the dystopian depiction of the future city. I mean, the first is, is, is a form of gratification, pure and simple, and I don't exclude myself from pleasure in this, the, the, the gratification that we derive from, from images of destruction. We relish the images of, of destruction not simply, I think, for their own sake, although perhaps there's a pleasure in that too, in the sheer spectacle of destruction, um, but because at a stroke they seem to simplify a social system that has become unmanageably complex in the present day, that we feel is overwhelmingly complicated to the point of being not just individually but, but collectively uncontrollable. Uh, I mean, I suppose... Historically speaking, the most recent dramatic instance of this would be the, the crash of 2008, the economic crisis of 2008-2009. So it's like the lifting of an immense collective responsibility watching these films. It's such a relief uh, 
to uh, not to have to deal with the city in all its everyday complexity. It's such a relief to be able to blame Bakawi, whoever he is, uh, this, this fictional Middle Eastern villain, rather than, say, Barack Obama, whose name uncannily uh, seems, seems close to his. It's such a relief to be able to blame it in the case of those ecological apocalypses on uh, what's fashionably called the Anthropocene today rather than on capital. Such a relief not to have to think about the, as I've implied, about the endless everyday uh, problems generated by advanced capitalist society, problems of uh, migration, perhaps above all topically, uh, of organisation, of, uh, of population, of, of exploitation. A kind of relief then to imagine a future in which we just subsist, in which our social and political responsibilities are lifted because we just have to subsist. Uh, we return to a kind of animal existence almost, uh, where it's about heroic survival, like, like Lear's image on the heath of unaccommodated man, of man, of humanity as a poor, bare, forked animal. There's a, there's a kind of utopian charge, it seems to me, to that. Uh, it lifts this vision of annihilation in these films, a political responsibility from us. It, it lifts a sense, uh, we no longer feel burdened by uh, an albeit vestigial sense of political agency, and that's a kind of collective, vicarious, perhaps, relief. So dystopia, in this sense, is at once, to use the terms of the, of the title of this talk, the subtitle, at once cruel and consoling. In an article from the LRB uh, a few years ago, Frederick Jameson asked, uh, who will recount the pleasures of dystopia? Who will recount the pleasures of dystopia? Today, uh, it seems that we don't need to, or at least certainly cultural commentators, critics, theorists, philosophers don't need to do so because popular culture itself recounts the pleasures of dysopia as in films like London's Fallen so uh, effectively and so explicitly. The second reason that I want to briefly uh, focus on in, uh, in, in, in talking about the, the spectacle of the city's descent into chaos this utopian charge that's secreted into the, into the, utopia, into, into the dystopian one it's because um, it involves, I think, potentially at least, not an abdication of political responsibility, but uh, an, assum an assumption or a or resumption of political responsibility. And it's therefore a little more, more hopeful, I suppose. The French philosopher, historian Louis Marin, uh, who wrote very brilliantly about Thomas More's utopia, whose, whose uh, anniversary we, we celebrate this year, wrote that catastrophe is the sublime way to open a neutral space, one which is absolutely different. It's the sublime way to open a neutral space, one which is absolutely different. And the representation of catastrophe in disaster films like, like this one, it seems to me, does that too. Um, it, it opens a kind of neutral space. It uses catastrophe to open a neutral space neutral space. Uh, and in that sense, it's, it inherits a long tradition that runs at least as far back as, um, as the earlier 19th century uh, to dystopian fictions like Mary Shelley's uh, The Last Man from the 1820s, uh, Richard Jeffrey's After London from the mid-1880s, um, albeit in a, in a sort of rather degenerate uh, and depoliticized 
form. They too are interested in clearing, using catastrophe to clear a space in order to think alternatives, future alternatives, alternatives for, for a different kind of city. So catastrophe clears the ground for utopian imagination, for utopian imaginings, and I think that's one of the appeals of these kinds of, of, uh, of film. But in the present context, or in the context perhaps more broadly of capitalism, of advanced capitalist society, catastrophe is rarely experienced as, uh, as a punctual event, as, a, as, as, as something singular that intervenes from nowhere. Uh, Walter Benjamin uh, described the catastrophe as simply the, f- the fact that things go on happening, the, th- the fact uh, that the system and that our everyday lives just keep on going, as he put it. So Benjamin saw catastrophe, saw crisis as part of the everyday fabric of our lives in capitalist uh, modernity. And we need, I think, to counterpose that notion of catastrophe to this spectacular, fictional one, one here. How, and I'll end really with this, I suppose, is how do we, how do we use these every, this everyday sense of, of catastrophe, this sense that catastrophe is, is structural to capitalism's uh, everyday life to its its survival, um, the kind of creative destruction, if you like, that's built into to capitalism. How do we use those that that sense of catastrophe to clear a neutral space in uh, Marin's terms for utopian imaginings, imaginings for thinking about some more absolute alternative? Uh, I mean, this seems to me particularly pertinent at a time when London is, as many of you will, will uh, know all too well, is being uh, creatively destroyed, would be to put it politely, um, constructively destroyed or destroyed by the construction industry and the, uh, and, the, and the property developers in all sorts of ways that infringe quite directly on our perceptions of public space and our, our uh, movements in the city our lives in, in general. So how do we use the kind of everyday catastrophes that are going on in London at the moment and that are visible everywhere on, on, on building sites, in fact, to open neutral spaces, absolutely different spaces in Marin's terms? Uh, I mean, one answer to this, and I just throw this out at the end without taking any kind of... Um, uh, without ex- sort of elaborating much, but uh, is, is occupation. Uh, and we might want to think in the discussion about the way in which the occupation of spaces in an attempt to appropriate or expropriate them um, has functioned in the last five or so years as a way of exploiting catastrophe in this everyday sense to think, to open uh, uh, open up alternative kinds of spaces, uh, to uh, instill uh, or, or concretize or enact uh, what David Harvey in Spaces of Hope calls a dialectical utopianism. In other words, a utopianism, as he has it, that is not just about space but about agency, that is about process as well as, as, well as space. Um, occupation would be one fairly militant way of doing this, but there are all sorts of others, uh, including greening bits of the cities or rewilding bits of the city or whatever it might be that, uh, that we could think alongside, uh, alongside of that and that might um, you know, enter into dialogue with, with some of the things that other speakers say. But I will leave it there for the moment.
Hi there, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming, and thanks to the LSE for having us. Um, just check that this works. Yeah, perfect. So the question uh, posed tonight um, was one of whether future cities will be cruel or consoling utopias. Um, it's my belief that they'll be both. We can dispense with the, the cruel or consoling. Uh, but this is Dubai Towers. It was designed, uh, was due to start construction in 2008. It was TVS design, put it together. It was going to happen in Dubai. Um, and it's had the good, the good manners not to be built. Uh, but it's somewhat symbolic of Dubai as an entity. I think flying into Dubai, you get the sense of real utopian sort of awe, really. It's quite awe-inspiring to see a city rise up shimmering from the desert like something in Arabian Nights. Um, but there's also the sense that for the people who built Dubai, uh, the sort of slave laborers, this must be a, a spectacular atrocity, really. Um, and possibly it's always been that way. I often think of ancient Rome. What was ancient Rome to someone that's being dragged into the Colosseum? Um, so Dubai is a very obvious example of a tendency that we have increasingly with future cities and contemporary cities of there being utopian and dystopian elements um, working symbiotically. <coughs> I started writing imaginary cities in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, um, and I was following a friend of mine who's here tonight, Chris Kelly. He's a film director making a documentary called The Cause of Progress about land grabbing. Um, now, this was uh, called Bunkok Lake, so it was a vast lake in the north of the city. And a mixture of um, the government and various consortiums had their eye on it as, as prime real estate. So they drained the lake and they got rid of the hundreds of families who were living there. They evicted them. And there was lots of flourishing. There was a, a whole flourishing part of the city there. They completely got rid of it and drained it. And they're building an eco-city there at the minute. So it's to show that Utopia does exist, but it exists primarily for the few, and there's always a price that's paid, and the price is often paid by those who have the least. Um, so that's essentially where imaginary cities came out, came out of that environment. We live amongst the wreckage of earlier utopias, so a lot of the things that we take for granted, I mean, the fact that we're not all dead of dysentery or... The fact that we can log on to the internet and go anywhere in the world, talk to anyone, uh, was for centuries a, a utopian ideal. It was just a, a, a crazy dream. Um, even the idea of having hospitals and schools and libraries. Um, we're, we're kind of surrounded by these fragments of utopia. Um, but when they're successful, they often become invisible. And we take it for granted that they were always naturally there or they were inevitable, when in fact they actually came from people fighting for them. Um, when architecture, um, well, the strangeness of architecture becomes invisible to an extent as well. So we have the likes of, this is Archigram's Walking City. It was designed in the late 60s. Um, and it's often used, I mean, there's a lot of fans 
myself included, of Archigram design-wise. I think they're absolutely fantastic. They're fascinating to flick through their archives. But they're dismissed by a lot of architects and, and architectural theorists as being you know, designing impossible buildings and unbuildable things, and it's seen as an indulgence. Um, likewise, Lebius Woods' is sort of insectile buildings. Um, in fact, both Archigram and Lebius Woods were hitting on fascinating ideas, and a lot of which has reverberated into the real world. Um, and their sidelining, I think, has been exceptionally unfair, they had a lot of utopian thinking, but they had a lot of dystopian warnings as well uh, that we, we can learn a lot from. We tend to dismiss these people as cranks, and at the same time, we almost silently accept really, really bizarre architecture whenever it has an industrial purpose or a military purpose or a commercial purpose. So... It's fine to be strange, provided there's some kind of profit at the end of it. Um, you think of how weird an oil rig actually is. You think of the idea. It's, it's as strange as anything that Archigram invented, but it's perfectly acceptable, whereas the likes of Archigram are a bunch of you know, 1960s nutcases. Part of the thing that I do uh, a lot online is look at unbuilt plans, and primarily just for entertainment purposes, it's, it's kind of funny to just look at these ridiculous things and, and laugh at them. Um, but I think there is important kind of subtext to it. This is uh, Charles Glover's King's Cross Airport. That was, he wanted it to be built. Um, King's Cross. Just think of the disasters that would have come. <laughs> Planes landing directly on top of the city. This is Holden's Art Deco Tower Bridge. It was designed during the Second World War, and it's made out of glass, which is helpful for the Luftwaffe. <laughs> and this is uh, Misha Black's um, South Bank. This is what the South Bank would have looked like uh, had he got his way, which I think he should have got his way, personally. But um, it's neither here nor there. In a way, these ridiculous and fascinating designs, they kind of absolve the city that does exist, the city that was built, um, and the strangeness of it. We have a city that we accept that has a skyline feature and a walkie-talkie and a gherkin and a shard, and we don't think that's ridiculous. Um, whereas, you know, it's easy to laugh at these people from the past. Um, so there's a, a sort of an absolving process there. But I think they're important in a progressive sense as well. I think it shows that not only could cities be different, but they almost were different. And there is that power. Every single thing in the skyline has come from a decision and a dream of an individual. None of it's natural or inevitable. And there is a power to actually change it and, and have an input. Often the dangers of utopianism are shown as very active. Um, so this is Le Cabousier's um, design for the centre of Paris. Um, he was going to bulldoze the centre of Paris and replace it with um, these tower blocks. Now, the, it, it's not quite as Philistine as it looks. There were some interesting ideas in there, but 
I think we can all agree that it's very good that it didn't happen. Um, but the real danger for me, uh, in terms of utopian thinking and, and the way society's heading and futures in the city, um, it's not this kind of grand technocratic nightmare that we've been warned about in dystopian fiction for so long. It's, it's much more passive, um, and it's happening right now as we speak. And it looks like this. It's the, the creep of liminal spaces, um, what Remkul has calls junk space, uh, Marc Auger calls non-place, this, this sort of commercialised, privatised, purgatorial space um, that begins in, in airports and is, is kept outside the city where it belongs, um, but has gradually seeped in via motorway service stations into shopping malls and, and into our lives, essentially. Um, there's quite a few jobs I've had where the office spaces haven't been a million miles from here. Um, and they tend to think that putting in a few playpens for adults is somehow going to save us from it. But the, um, the creep of the liminal and this passive sort of loss of space, as, as Matthew said, the privatization of, of public space and the sort of mediocrity of it is, is the, great, the great, great worry of our times, I think. Um, there are certainly spectacular cities to come and spectacular architecture. Uh, this is by Mir Studios, who, who they base all their work on, on essentially unbuilt briefs, so they, they don't want to build any of it, but they're just sort of opening up conceptual space. Um, so... There are amazing designs out there, and I'm sure a lot of them will come about. And I'm quite a fan, unlike a lot of my colleagues, I'm, I'm quite a fan of, of work that is happening you know, by architects and, and things. It's a, a guilty pleasure of mine. Um, but there is a danger that we'll lose our connection to the city, the connection between the citizen and the city. Um, one of the questions to ask in, in all these future plans is where are people going to live? Um, it's something that's continually left out of the plans. It's never accounted for. And we really have a, dis, a, a slightly dystopian situation in Britain at the minute of, of people just being left out of the plans. You know, very little social housing being built since the late 70s. Um, and a property boom coming off the back of that. Uh, it's essentially a you know, Ponzi scheme that's defrauding generations to come. Um, and it's happening very silently. It's not happening in these grand technocratic schemes at all. It's, it's just creeping in there. Culture reminds us that the future has to be a plurality. It can't be one person's voice. It can't be one section of society's voice. Um, it has to be a place that we can live in and inhabit uh, and participate in, um, and that the city without the citizen is just a kind of husk of, of, of stone and glass. Um, this is by Simon Stallenhag, who's a science fiction, um, a science fiction conceptual artist, and his work is fantastic because it reminds us that the, the future will contain human stories, human resonances, and the private mythologies that we have, and if it doesn't, then we'll soon find ourselves living in someone else's dream, um, a dream from which we'll be unable to awake. 
Um, and I think to escape that sort of nightmare scenario, we need to start dreaming ourselves. Thanks. Good afternoon, good evening. Um, Pleasure to be here. Now for something completely different. I'm going to talk about the people who do dream. I'm going to talk about... Which way does it go? The top one? Aha! Right. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to talk about designers. Um, I uh, lead a research lab at Lancaster University called Imagination Lancaster. So guess who inhabits the lab? mainly designers, some social scientists and and some scientists. And I'm going to talk about um, how designers, or discuss whether designers think about utopia or whether what they do is about utopia. Um, Actually, one of my designers is in the audience, and I'm going to show you some pictures that uh, she's actually produced later on. But... um, I'm going to show you some images, none of which will be about cities, none of which will be buildings... So, and I'm not going to explain the images. You can ask me about them later. First of all, designers are trained to be scientists, social scientists, artists, and have an element of humanity. In order to design something, you have to understand people, you have to study people, you have to study their behavior. Then you have to understand materials and methods and processes and the leading edge tools and techniques and processes. And you have to understand how they are engineered and things are put together. And then you have to understand how people use them. So you have to understand that cycle. And as time has gone by, designers have specialised in different parts of that cycle. But designers are also trained to want to solve problems. Mainly, that's the question they ask themselves. So designers tend to want to do good. So they're always thinking about the future. Whether they're thinking about patient safety or designing out crime, they're thinking about some aspect of the future. They also want to... Um, create straw men. They develop models for people to think about. Mostly, if you imagine, we always say as designers, if you ask somebody what type of car they want, they will tell you not much more than what they've already got. Most people can't imagine further than, well, I don't want it as black and I want it to... I want the the heating to come on when I um, sit in it, or they want some functional aspect of it, or they want a sort of dream version, but they actually can't imagine it themselves. Designers tend to create straw men, prototypes, for other people to look at to say, that's what we want, or that's what we don't want. They, They develop, they turn the intangible to the tangible. What do you think this is? It's a modern mixed tape machine. So at the moment, what you you do with your music is you now download it. You download it from the internet, you stream it, etc. Well, 
Paul Colton, who works with me, has decided, well, actually, it was great when we had the tape and we could download things and give it to our girlfriends with the, 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 the um, sound exactly in the, in the, in the sort of sequence, sequence that you'd want it. So he's developed now a bracelet that you can translate images and, and sound and music onto and then a player that you can download that back. So he's imagined the future. It may not be utopian, but he started to put that sort of thing together. He's actually now working with the BBC on perceptive radio. Designers also make the tangible, intangible, probably unwearable, but they use technology to do that. And another colleague of mine thinks about other types of futures, Stuart Walker thinks about how we might be more sustainable and he makes imaginary products. Products that don't use energy but use tomatoes or lemons or what have you. How utopian is that? I don't know. It's just a question. Designers also facilitate the future. So we do actually work with lots of other people. Designers used to be sole individual designers, you know, working in their, a bit like artists work in their garret. They now tend to be, well, I'm testing this process because this is what I do in my research, put the designers at the centre, at the centre of the team. So we facilitate um, scientists, civil engineers, humanities people, social scientists, and we start to think about the future together. And it's very hard. It is really difficult to put. Um, Professor John Urry, who, who's a social scientist, sociologist, talking about mobilities, with a civil engineer who's designing the um, the new underground systems. Um, but we actually use design to help them think about this. And we um, we've recently been doing some work called Livable Cities, where we're looking at urban form, urban living, urban metabolism, the urban infrastructure, the uh, economics of the city twice, actually, it looks like. Um, And we are developing, the engineers are developing a city analysis methodology. Now, for us designers, this feels rather deterministic. Can you measure everything? Can you measure the flow of everything? And can you build a model? Well, the computer modelers, that's their utopia. They want to be able to model everything, model all flows, put in alternative paradigms and see what happens. Actually, the designers in imagination don't think that will work. But what we actually do is start to think about things like the sharing city. So what we've been doing is we've been doing um, what we call thought experiments. We've been doing thought experiments about what a courteous city might look like, or a no-car Birmingham, or an uh, ecosystems-friendly city, or a rezone city. And this, so we start with what does a sharing city look like? And we just do it on our own. Once, Once we bring together the communities. So we brought together the community of Lancaster. We give people blocks and coloured pens and paper and ask them what they're doing now, what they'd like to create, what they'd like to destroy. 
And Serena, who's in the audience here, makes sense of it by drawing it, by drawing that discussion and visualising what people think would help them make a sharing city. What sort of materials, both physical and digital, would need to be there to be a sharing place? So, again, we're using design and visualisation to help people think about new conceptual ideas about the social aspects of a city. So then, so okay, designers do it. Then designers bring other people in to help them visualise ideas. The next thing we did was bring, we thought, okay, how do we visualise the future city? So we brought together, not as groups, but we brought single groups of people together. We brought retailers together. How do retailers think about the future city? And does it look like the um, shopping malls you've talked about? We brought um, archaeologists as a group together. We brought um, environmental engineers. We brought medics and so on. So we had 12 different groups, um, and they did the same thing. You'd be interested, well, you might not be interested to know, but when we brought the historians and the architects together, and the, um, the archaeologists together, we asked them to imagine a future city, and the first thing they said was, we can't, we only think about the past. So we had to try and help them think about, well, how would they put their past into the future? And it was quite difficult for them to actually discuss it. Um, But then, and you can't read this, but then again, Serena will take how people thought about the place and model it in different ways. So we've got there the the transport and utilities, how they thought about it, the the, the science and environment sectors, and we start to analyse how they think about it to see whether... The retailers have anything in common with the archaeologists or the medics. And again, we go even further. So where do they think in common about living, about community, about the structure, about production and consumption, about the environment, about the governance, to see whether there are some common things? And there are some common things. Often the common things are in the current zeitgeist. So if people... At the moment, I would say, everybody is talking about um, the community, co-production, neighbourhoods, people getting involved. So there's a lot of that, you know, the community getting involved, taking ownership of their place. Now, how much is that something that will continue to happen? Or is it just a passing moment? We will see, because we have also done this in reality. So we then say... Another colleague said, well, we have in Lancaster, around the castle, a big derelict space. The local authority said, we want to look at what we do beyond the castle. So we had some funding, and we spent 18 months asking 700 different people in Lancaster, and Lancaster's not that big, so it's quite a big proportion of Lancaster. We had festivals. We had people making things. We had... Children in the park making things. And then we have people in, in other spaces thinking, what on earth are we going to do with 700 ideas about how we work ar- around the castle? How do you then take all those ideas and um, start to make sensible decisions about what you do about a space? Finally, why do we need to think about the future? 
the future of cities will be the multitude of bits. It is the nexus of the physical public space where we walk and talk and greet each other and sit and have coffees and the digital public space. So we are moving about in a space that is both physical and digital. We are, I'm not going to explain this. Anybody knows what makeys are? We'll talk about that later. But we are using, uh, we're going into the digital space and we know we are not using the same ethical um, and behavioral things that we would do in a physical space. So we have to start thinking about the future of the city, how it makes, it will change us, how it will change our movement behaviors, how it will change our relationship with other people, how it will change the physical space when we have sensors absolutely everywhere. We have cameras everywhere, but we will have sensors, and we are censored. Uh, sensed. I mean, not, well, we are censored too, but that's, we are sensed. So the issue is, what will the future city look like? And we do have to think about it, and designers and people need to do it together, but some people have to make decisions, and that's what I'm interested in. Thank you. And now we're going to have two comments from our organizers. Um, all right, thanks everyone for being here. Uh, it was much larger turnout than we had originally expected, so this is great, and, and thanks to the, to the speakers. Um, I'm, I'm going to pick maybe one theme that, that came up here today and, uh, and invite the speakers to think about it, and that theme is the idea of work. Uh, now, Matthew was speaking about, he began with this image of, of disaster and catastrophe, and, uh, but, but what to me seemed in, in your comments was that what was more disastrous, perhaps, was the endless everyday, um, the exploitation that one experiences in the everyday life in the city, um, leading to what you had called subsistence existence. Uh, and Darren also spoke along a similar theme, which is that while there are utopian cities, someone is actually building these cities. And that person is usually alienated from the city that is, being, that is being built. And Rachel spoke about the fact that someone is actually designing these cities. Uh, and yet you see that designing the city, designing the future, is also work more than a project of imagination itself. It actually is a source of employment, even. So with that, I come back to, the, to, the, to, the, to Thomas More's utopia, actually, what, which is why, I suppose, in, in one sense, why we are all supposed to be here, 500th anniversary. And uh, Thomas More proposed agriculture as the most important uh, object of work on, on the island in his book, Utopia. And the length of the working day, and this is something that has always struck me as being interesting, the length of the working day was minimized to six hours, and leisure time was designated as the time when citizens applied themselves to learning. Uh, by the 19th century, though, industrial labor had replaced agriculture as a category of work that held the potential for political emancipation. And I'm talking about the 19th century because I was also implicated. I am a historian, and so I perhaps can think about past in more... Um, or the past interests me more than perhaps the future. Uh, 
but if the 19th century, uh, if industrial labor was was replacing agriculture, it was also political emancipation that industrial labor was promising. So intensive industrial production that could harness new technologies and increase the time available for leisure was imagined as a new basis of utopian community. So that's essentially uh, how uh, the kind of mid-19th century utopian cities or towns were imagined. But the history of the 19th and 20th centuries show that the promise of technology would always remain unfulfilled until workers organized themselves politically. So what that means is that the demand for a limited working day was actually the cornerstone of all 19th century politics that was working class politics. So while utopian imagination promised emancipation from within, politics struggled from, uh, from, while utopian imagination promised emancipation from without, which is kind of proposing a new model for society, politics struggled for emancipation from within, which is a transformation of society rather than imagining a completely alternate reality. And in this sense, utopian thinking was wholly inadequate to address the, the pressing problems of work that were brought up by industrial and post-industrial society. So in light of this, can one defend the future city today? If it promises to reduce the working day only by harnessing technology to, let's say, send jobs offshore, which is by displacing work rather than reducing work. In the absence of a politics of emancipation, work itself, and I think that since there's a lot of people who are professionals, perhaps, perhaps a lot of people in, in the room who are professionals, you'll identify with this, work itself becomes the sole source of fulfillment. And nowhere else is this more apparent than in cities where the specter of uselessness, as, as Richard has called it in, in his work, haunts professionals and manual workers alike. Which is to say that work itself is our only source of joy, especially when you're living in cities. Technological utopias are feeding on this, on this insecurity by promising greater automation in the execution of mundane and everyday activities. So from driving to work to buying groceries, there's automation so that we can actually spend more time working. Such utopias threaten to accelerate alienation rather than eliminate it. So can future cities, which might just be the premier sites of this alienation in the future, actually imagine in any way overcoming work and also provide possibilities for imagining a new politics of emancipation rather than simply being sites for the production of new ideas. I'll stop there for now, but now let's come. Uh, thanks very much for coming, uh, and thank you all as well. I'm going to keep it brief because I know we won't want to get on to questions. Um, and I want to bring it back to a term, or to something that actually seems to be running through all of the papers that we've seen and through what Nunab was speaking, which is about the imagination. That's something that seems to reside at the heart of the very premise of this festival itself. And I think we've had great comments already on, on who is actually imagining the future city, kind of who are the stakeholders in our future city. But I actually want to think about kind of where this city is being imagined, the actual locations of the imagination in the city, how you might be thinking about the utopia in situ. So less about the place of the imagination generally and more about the places of imagination. And I was struck actually by, when I was listening to your talk, Matthew, it kind of reminded me of uh, Patrick Keeler's film about London where he's, he's thinking about where we have to go 
to actually find utopian modernist thinking in 1990s London. And his claim is you have to retreat out to the suburbs. And even while the bombs are exploding in London and the financial system seems to be in collapse, there is no space, seemingly, still for utopian imaginings. And so I really want to think about where in contemporary London, which seems to be almost as apocalyptic, potentially, as 1990s London, at least how Patrick Keeler kind of imagined it, kind of thinking about the locations for utopian thinking today. Um, and I think that goes to a more specific question that I would have for Rachel as well about the issue of design, which is, is not so much just where these spaces are, but how actually we can be designing those spaces particularly, how we can actually design spaces not with a utopia in mind, but designing spaces that actually enable utopian thinking to be kind of produced in situ. So rather than just having an abstract vision of the utopia, which is, of course, a complex and contradictory idea, which is what we're trying to allude to, is thinking about how we can actually uh, produce spaces in the city today that might actually engender some kind of a utopian imagination in the future. So I'll leave it there, and hopefully we can just get into kind of discussion. I think what we'll do is ask you for some quest- questions, questions, and uh, then um, to uh, either uh, the presenters or the organizers, and then at the end we'll give them a kind of last, uh, uh, last round of, of making a comment. I'm going to uh, break my own rule at this point. And just remark that I'm trying to do an exercise like this for uh, UN Habitat now to imagine uh, what future cities are like. And in my view, what we should be imagining are problems that have no solution. That is, that a utopia is a kind of escape from contradiction and that the future lies in finding contradictions that can't be solved. I'll leave it there. But I I just have to say uh, about this that I think the problem with utopias is so much that they're operational rather than they're about difficulty, impossibility, contradiction, about things that seem to be almost impossible to make happen. And that, to me, is what what looking at the future is about. But that's a, that's, it's a very anti-utopian idea. So, uh, are there questions, comments that you want to put to uh, the panel? We have about 20, 25 minutes for this. Yes. Tell who you are. Briefly. Thank you. Is this working? Yep. Yeah. Um, my name is Ivor Wells. Um, I actually work uh, in the world of cities and, and urban design. Um, just a question about the, the digital realm that we've been talking... It's only just been briefly touched on. We've talked mostly about the physical, not so much the digital. And within that context is the whole question of data, which we haven't really talked about much. About? Data. Data, information. And no. we haven't touched on that at all. And I think that's where one of the, reason, one of the areas where the future city feels very personal for us citizens in cities in terms of what does that mean for our personal data? What is our relationship with that data? What is 
happening with that data and, and, and what does that mean in terms of our relationship with the city or the idea of the city. So I just wanted to ask the panel what their thoughts were on some of the really tough questions that are being asked at the moment in cities is the, the question right. of data and how that's dealt with. Somebody want to respond to that? <coughs> Rachel. I can talk about that. Okay, so we, we're coming up to the smart city issue. Where I mean, everybody talks about the smart city. Is it working? The smart city at the moment. And, that, and there are some utopian companies who think that they will be able to take all of our personal data from whatever they're tracking us, whether it's on our mobile phones or whether it's on um, sensors on the street, um, and they will be able to help the cities, us move about the cities better. So, but we still don't understand how we're going to analyse all that data this comes out to work. There'll be a lot of people in rooms analysing data and making visualisation. It won't all be automated. automated. Um, so, and there are others that say a smart city is about the people in that city and their smartness. And I think there is a, still, I mean, there's no answers to that. It's still under, under discussion. I personally don't think that, the, that we'll be able to have that smart cities that will be utopian where everything is, there'll be a, a main board where you just sit there and do this. It just won't happen. Because uh, a city is its people, and people are idiosyncratic, and no matter what algorithms you put into a system, it will not be able to sort of manage us all. So I am fairly utopian about the idea of a dystopian future and, and, and data moving us about. Can we have another question? Uh, this uh, lady right here. The public. Um, I'm, I'm, we didn't get, I know we had the original dystopia frame at the beginning, but I'm interested in the climate change city of the future. And it seems, I'm thinking about E.O. Wilson's idea of rewilding 50% of the world, partly because of what's just come out of Paris and the enormous emphasis that's been put on um, BECs in that agreement that we need to create. You know, we don't have any viable ca ca carbon capture and storage devices at the moment, apart from trees. Um, and that, you know, the proposal is to build enormous forests, which seems to tie in with the E.O. Wilson idea. I'd love to see in, in the future a kind of archipelago of really efficient cities. But are so, you saying, is this an idea about utopia? This is a utopia to save us from climate change, that we have an archipelago of really efficient cities. Okay, so your question to them is, is climate change, to someone here, is creating a uh, city that's enabled for climate yeah, change. Yeah, because we're going to lose... A utopian. Okay, lose, I understand. We're going to lose our cities, our existing cities. Right. We're going to lose them all. That's very cl clear. Uh, who would like to respond to that? Is this utopian, thinking about climate change? Um, I could respond to that. Um, I did a, a, a piece for the, the Guardian that got roundly hammered, and uh, comment is free. Um, <laughs> by the, the lynch mob, um, and rightfully so in some ways, but uh, it essentially uh, was in response to, to the Paris agreements, and I just got really irritated by the fact that they had projected onto the Eiffel Tower, um, there is no plan B, and I thought, plan B is exactly what we need. We need plan Bs and Cs and Ds and Es, because... I understand why they said that. It, you know, it, it puts an emphasis on the fact that we have to have an agreement that works. But it's my feeling, and this is possibly dystopian, um, that the change is coming 
no matter what we do at this stage. Um, I would like to see cities ex- sort of accept that and, and see how they can actually change, not just in terms of the likes of rewilding and carbon capture, which I think is vitally important, but in terms of actually thinking where is this water going to go, how can buildings react to the sea rising. The vast majority of our cities are built on coastlines. Um, some parts of the world will be absolutely devastated. Cambodia, as I mentioned earlier, is a completely flat country, lies at sea level. It's, it's gone. Bangladesh is gone. You know, huge swathes of the world are gone. Um, how can we work in terms of actual physical architecture, um, in terms of changing streets and, and working on where is, you know, how can we react in terms of where the water is going to go? Um, so plan B's and C's and D's and E's are absolutely vital. At this stage, I think it's, it's healthier to accept that it's coming and working our way back from that than it is to just say that, oh, we, will we really have to solve this. Um, like you said earlier, it, it might be unsolvable. It might be one of those ones. Um, and humanity has developed in reaction to the sea so many different cultures from Venice to the floating cities in Southeast Asia um, or floating villages rather um, so there are ways and means that we can and there, there are a lot of really forward thinking studios um, who are designing concepts um, and I think we need to, to focus more on that If I could just make a gloss on that the, the idea that there is no solution is a way of really making heterotopia rather than utopia that is, something is impossible. So we need to think about various ways of dealing with the impossible. When we say we have a problem and we've, we need the solution, already we've stopped thinking. So that that's what you mean? Yeah. Another question. Yes, right here. Tell who you are. I'm glad you're a member of the public, but do you have a name? <laughs> um. I work in the property industry, and um, I see on a daily basis Londoners getting pushed out of the centre as places like Soho and um, Covent Garden just become more and more residential, and the prices per square foot are absolutely astronomical. <clears throat> Sorry, and there are lots of developments that are coming up now, which are going mostly to. Invest, investors, sorry, abroad. What's the solution? Like, how do we get London back for Londoners? Matthew. Yeah, I, had, I, had, I was always going to get the you third question. The word, the you first. mentioned the word capitalism, you poor thing. Um, I'm not really equipped to, to answer that. I mean, you know, my... Uh, because it's not really my background, but, I, you know, more social housing is, is what I would say. More I mean, squatters. Say again? Squatters. More squatters. More squatters, good. And more, and more social housing. Yeah, is that perhaps one of the locations to actually produce utopias? Is it actually in the reclamation of those kind of spaces that are just being kind of willfully taken from most people and most people's claims upon them? And actually, as you were saying, you know, ideas like squatting but also just occupying these spaces and actually making a physical reclamation of space. I mean, I think there, have to be two, there, has, there has to be a movement from above and a movement from below in order to, to stem this and to, and to change things. The movement from above has to be uh, accountability to... Uh, the, you know, the, the government has to 
um, insist on social housing quotas instead of uh, let, let them slide. I mean, Channel 4 News did a very good report the other night. Paul Mason did a great report about the, um, about the ways in which the government has, has allowed property developers in London to get away with absolutely minimising um, their, their social housing quotas, um, where they've basically been... been uh, uh, they've been, you know, not just been sold but given land... Uh, in fact, in some cases, they've paid massive property developers to take land, which they're going to make a huge profit on, um, and they've allowed them to, uh, to minimise social housing content on that, on that property-developed land. So there has to be, it seems to me, accountability. There has to be really rigorous pursuit, uh, you know, legal, etc., pursuit of, uh, of those property developers. And there also has to be, as you suggest, there has to be a movement from below, I think, in to, to, to reappropriate these spaces that are getting progressively uh, privatised, <coughs> chip, chipped away, expropriated. And I'm just going to say that if nobody's actually seen it yet, the House of Lords had a select committee on the future of the built environment and um, they have actually made 66 recommendations, one of which is that local, local authorities um, take back their ability to build um, homes uh, and in the local areas. And that's one of them. They've also recommended a commissioner for the built environment. Goodness knows what that person will do. But they've actually tried to suggest that, that um, a policy should be taken back into the hands of... Uh, of um, uh, local authorities to actually make decisions about building homes and where they should be built. Whether that you can do that in London, but actually I hate the word tipping point, but in, what happens in cities is it, they move around, particularly London. Its regeneration moves around. And if you get a place that becomes empty because it's full of, of just unaffordable properties that are owned by overseas, it isn't vibrant. People do not want to live there. So the actual location of vibrancy moves around, and we've seen that. Now, some people think that's great because it actually improves the property value in that area and, and therefore... But, you know, London has always moved around. The, the city, you know, it was the city walls and then Clarkham around, around it was a disaster area. You know, it was taken over, inhabited by different groups, particularly gentrified, you might call it. But cities do evolve and move and, and they will always do that. And it's that flexibility that you need to have. And it's not just on where people are, it's on the flexibility of what that space is used for and whether it's greened or not but it is a, a, right. it's a cycle right. and the one thing is they need it to be flexible so actually building in boundaries is not the way to go I think that though there's a, there's a real danger um, of that, that life cycle that you're talking about um, there's a danger in London of that having, having died essentially I remember even 10 years ago a place say in the East End would become very gentrified and culture and sort of working class communities would pop up elsewhere. And there was this kind of cycle that, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's terrible that these places have become gentrified, but it'll reappear somewhere else in London. And what I've noticed in recent times is really worrying is that it's not reappearing in London, it's reappearing outside of London. So I have lots of friends who were creative types in London, and they're now scattered all over Britain. They're, they're popping up elsewhere, so it's as if the cycle has pushed people out um, you know a community would have arose somewhere else but now it, it arises in Brighton or Hepton Bridge or Glasgow you know 
um, and that's a, that's a real, real danger. I don't see the political will to change that because mm-hmm. there's a, essentially a massive property bubble that's been inflated for the last 20 years. There's any attempt to build social housing is, is shrieked at as some kind of communist plot. Um, <laughs> But we have to have somewhere to live, and London will stagnate. I know of a lot of beautiful cities, particularly in Europe, that are essentially dead, and they're just good for tourists and you know, amazing apartments that lie empty because their owners live in Dubai. And I would hate to see that happen to London, and I do have some faith that it won't happen, but it won't happen because of the people, not because of the political parties. But one thing I was just... Um, I suppose perhaps as... as as an organizer, but I, I want to insist on the question of utopia, though. I think that is, is problem-solving the same as imagining a utopia? I think that, sure, there's a problem of the environment, and we're trying to solve it, or perhaps not, or we are talking about that, or housing, which is something that... Uh, but is, is acknowledging a problem and then perhaps uh, suggesting, let's say, more public housing... Is is that what utopia is? Is is that or or is it or is it simply saying that? Well, uh, I mean, perhaps that it might actually not make for fun conversation. Maybe that's the problem. But you know, just saying that. Uh, well, utopia is is a future where where everyone has housing, and then kind of stopping there. You know, clearly that's not that's not very interesting either yeah. to talk about. But I was wondering what how does this actually provide for a site of. Uh, of any transformation, rather than rather than simply imagining a future where where there will be more housing, yeah. which is which is uh, certainly utopian in in the sense that in the sense that is always usually dismissed. Right? Mm. Well, yeah, sure. You know, let's wait for it, uh, or let's wait for when the water recedes. Well, I, th- I think it's I think there's a problem in the way we perceive utopia. We tend to think of utopia as as a destination, as a place, and utopia is really a process and well, it's a lot of things. It's a process, and it's a critical position as well. It's somewhere in the future that we can look back at ourselves and judge our contemporary society and say, what is wrong? How do we get to this? this it's not an end point. It's a, it's a, it's a journey, essentially. Um, and I think it's because we have a visual, we think very visually, so we tend to think the minute the word utopia is said, You'll have different visions pop into your mind. Thomas More, Woodcut of an Island, or some Russian constructivist Marvel, or Le Corbusier, Bulldozing Paris. And that's the wrong way of thinking of it, because the future isn't going to stop. Even if we reach the point where there's social housing for everyone, time will not stand still. There's no end to history. Everyone who's ever proclaimed an end to history has been shown to be absolutely ridiculous. So it's an endless process. As Richard said earlier, it's it's the kind of impossible... It's never going to be re- realised, but it is a direction that we can head in. Just very, very quickly, it seems to me that absolutely structural to the idea of utopia is, is a totalising impulse, is an attempt to find some totalising uh, conception of the future, of the future city, say, um, and, that, uh, and that any piecemeal solution isn't almost by definition utopia. I think that, that to the extent that there is residually an emancipatory dimension to utopian thinking it lies precisely in that in a in a uh, in a a context in a climate in which ideologically speaking 
everything is detotalized, and indeed the very notion of totality is, is conflated with totalitarianism. Um, and when the division of labor is so elaborate uh, and our lives in many ways so fragmented that, um, uh, that we can't join things up, to totalize, for it not to join up our thinking in, in sort of Tory rhetoric, but to totalize uh, is, 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 remains imperative. Could I, I'm so tempted to just add one thing. I'm going to sit down. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what Bernie Sanders' solution to your problem is. And that's uh, beautifully simple. Reimpose price controls. Now the... And um, if he gets elected, as I hope he will, that's what's going to happen. Now the interesting thing to me about that beautifully simple solution it's, it's outrageous and that's where the utopia to me, I, I disagree with you about the totalizing element the element to me that seems to be I hate utopias but the element that is, you, is good about it and you could say is because it's utopian is it provokes incredible outrage in most people or most Republicans and many Democrats who hear this, you know, because it's a it's a, it's a it's a solution to your problem, but to enact that solution, many other things have to collapse, like the sanctity of private property, right? Uh, the, the the belief in markets. Um, so I think an aspect of this, I wouldn't say it's totalization, I mean, but again, I, I don't like utopia. I would say the issue about this, when we have something that's got guts, is the degree to which people think, no, not yes, but no. The more people who can feel that, the more I think we have something that has the force that we're looking for in a utopia. Um, we'll see how this p- plays out in the U.S. I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll have a test case uh, about um, property controls. I'm sorry. Uh, let's, have a, uh, let's have another question. Maybe somebody in the back. Can you run to that person in the back row? And then we'll have a final round of comments. Yes. Brief, brief. Um, hi, my name's Nadia. I studied politics and literature at the University of Melbourne. Um, we've talked a lot about internal spaces within the city in utopias, and I was curious to think, you know your thoughts on external spaces outside of the limits of the city. I mean, the problem that we have now is that our cities are growing larger and larger and becoming these kind of monstrous behemoths that tend to encroach on other physical spaces around the world. And so I wanted to know whether, whether anyone had any thoughts about what, how that could affect in the future, whether there's a way that we can limit capacities, whether could, cities could, will... Could your question be reframed as, is there an ideal or utopian size for a city? Well, yeah, well, yeah because in, in, my, in my kind of conception of the future, I can't see cities not bumping into each other, and then okay. I, guess, I guess everyone, yeah, there's just the rate of growth that's happening. It's, it's hard to imagine it not meeting. Well, in the UK, we have a utopia called the Green Belt. (laughs) Um, And 
various different political parties try to either um, empower it or denude its power. Um, so in the UK, we spend all our time trying to study what density is. So I've done a study of density. Um, in the UK, there was, um, before this government was in, in power, we had um, uh, building regs that said we should have um, no less than 30 houses per hectare. Can you imagine what 30 houses per hectare is? No. So actually, um, you know, some places, when I did a survey of, of, of local authority planners, nobody could tell me what good density was. So good density is a lived experience. In London, we are trying to make everywhere denser and denser around the transport intersections. So the idea is that people live nearer to King's Cross and Euston and they pack everybody in. Now, how the, the issue is, we don't know how dense it is. And density is dependent on the fabric, how we can move people around. And that is about utopias again, you know, starting to imagine how dense we can get, how many people we can get on the tube. So as, as long as we have a green belt and the conservative forces around the country retaining that, we'll, we'll in the UK, but differently in China. In China, it just spreads and spreads and spreads and consumes all the resources we have. So the thing is, how much can we have in the UK influence on those other places? Let's have a final question. We're being kicked out of here at, at 6.30. Um, let's take this person over here. Just, I want you to have exercise, you know. So, uh. Thank you. Uh, Jason Sayer, Architects newspaper. In the images we all saw in there, none of the, the buildings or the utopian seems native to us, and by the nature of utopia, that is the case. Do you see any place for the vernacular in utopian cities or, indeed, dystopian cities? And if so, how would it be implemented, if possible? I, th I think it's, it's absolutely essential. Um, I think there's a danger with... I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright is my favourite architect. I'm kind of... Obs I was going to say mildly obsessed, but obsessed, obsessed. Um, and he always tried to incorporate the vernacular into his work, no matter how kind of utopian it was or, or even absurd. He, does, he, he had this plan for Greater Baghdad where he was going to build um, like statues of Sinbad and have an island that was set where he, you know, the Garden of Eden was purportedly supposed to be. Um, and it was going to go ahead in the late 50s and, and basically the... Um, the king of Iraq at the time, I think he was a king, um, he was assassinated, so it got cancelled. So Frank Lloyd Wright had, um, he was always taken from, you know, Mayan culture and Japanese culture for the, the Imperial Hotel that he built, and he was always incorporating these local influences into these pretty utopian spaces. Um, now, he got a lot of criticism for that because it was seen as Orientalism, and he, he didn't know, you know, he, he wasn't a native, so therefore... Um, he shouldn't be doing these things, but I, I think it was um, he was really anticipating um, what was due to come, and we've seen then the unrolling of modernism across the world. You see, I've seen it in um, in Cambodia where they have these amazing modernist buildings that 
they are influenced by Le Corbusier but, and Expressionism, but they're also very, very fixed in the local landscape. Um, they take influence from Angkor Wat and, and bring it into the modernist age. Um, so I think it's absolutely essential that places remain different and local and have individual stories to tell. I think that's the great danger of the liminal spaces, is that everywhere ends up looking the same. Um, now, there might be a certain comfort in that. If I, I remember going with um, the director, Chris Kelly, who's here, um, going off into the, the rainforest in Cambodia to follow a story. And um, when we got back, I just wanted to go to McDonald's because we'd been for so long in this blistering mm. heat um, that just some semblance of normality was needed. But it isn't normality, it's abnormality, and we, we just grow um, habitualized to it. So if we want to fight that liminal space and the creep of airports through your lives, um, then we have to focus on the idiosyncratic details of where we're actually from. Um, right. Right. Uh, Matthew and, and uh, Rachel, final thoughts? Uh, um, no final thoughts. No completely final. confused. <laughs> um, I mean, I was just going to respond to you, Richard, very quickly, and perhaps uh, unrealistically try to, <laughs> to integrate, or, or maybe not integrate, but articulate our two conceptions of of utopia. I mean, I li- actually I like your um, I like your idea that utopia is is the kind of polemical provocation. Um, that uh, you know, rather than the totalizing impulse, uh, and I mean, in a sense, the two those two traditions, which we're each voicing, uh, are, have always been structural <coughs> to the utopian tradition, and you find it there in, in in more where there's both the kind of utopian planning and the total right. society, and there's the satirical, and in a sense, what you're talking about is it has a, a satirical right. dimension. But and what I like about it though is that um, is that if you can find that one polemical provocation like um, you know, rent controls or one might say uh, full employment, an idea that has a practical valence um, and that doesn't aspire to, to, on, the, on the face of it to be totalizing, to involve a systemic transformation of society, design of the future city, whatever it might be, but that nonetheless if its logic is pursued involves a total ideological reorganization right. of Society, um, then, then one's integrating the totalizing and the and and the kind of fragmentary, polemical, satirical dimensions of this of this utopian tradition. And I think you know what, what I like about what you said is that you know that that if pushed to its logical conclusion or if enacted, it's it's going to completely reconfigure. You know, the Bernie Sanders policy is going to completely reconfigure things, right. and it's going to push all sorts of other things out of shape in, in potentially liberatory right. uh, ways. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how I'd, I'd finish up. And I Rachel, would, you I have would the come last back, word. I would come back to the pragmatics. So we used, you might call them utopias, in ask, helping city leaders think about a future place. So we use 50-year scenarios, and they are extremes, dystopias or utopias, to get people to think about that. The same thing. It's a, it's a, a tool for helping people think about where design. they actually want to design the future and how they want to be. Well, we could go on forever. We're not allowed to uh, because others have to experience utopia at 7 p.m. So <laughs> let me just thank you all uh, 
for these wonderful presentations and the comments, and thank you all for coming. And, uh,